every culture seems to have different customs as it pertains to marriage ceremonies. The whole courtship, dating, marriage process can really differ from culture to culture, region to region. And certainly this is the case if you were to compare your kind of typical 21st century American wedding to a 1st century Jewish wedding. But it might surprise you just how much is actually in common between both of the cultures. And specifically as it pertains to how to throw a good wedding reception. The idea is that a wedding is a glorious thing and so it really deserves a party. Right? A wedding is not a sad, gloomy thing. This is a celebration, and so it's fitting that we not just get married, but that we celebrate getting married, right? And as I've learned throughout the years, as many Americans think, apparently it's also the case in the first century Jewish wedding reception custom that no party is complete without an open bar. Would you turn to John chapter 2, please? John chapter 2, and when you are there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. We are going to read verses 1 through 12 together. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, thus saith the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now? This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This bars the reading of God's word. Would you please be seated? Jesus attends a wedding ceremony, and he's been granted permission to bring his five new disciples, his five new friends with him. And given the fact that Jesus and his mother are both invited there, it tells us that this is probably a family friend, someone who knew Mary and Jesus pretty well. But as expected, the story doesn't really focus on our newly wedded couple. We don't even know their names. We don't even know who's being married here. The story is appropriately focused not on the bride or on the groom, but on their very special guest of honor who is the son of man, who actually becomes the hero of the party, right? The wine has run out. And so Jesus miraculously comes through by transforming water, which they had an abundance of, into wine. And this was a true act of kindness, by the way, uh, to whomever the groom was, owes Jesus a big thank you. Uh, the first century Jewish world what was, is known as what we sometimes refer to as a hospitality culture. 
Many cultures in the Middle Eastern area are known as hospitality cultures, which means that they take hospitality to a new level. And to, to be inhospitable carries with it an incredible amount of cultural shame. And when we talk about shame, cultural shame in these settings, it's more than just like the kind of cultural shame we experience. It's not just like embarrassment. Um, in these settings, it is, it is far more significant, the shame that comes with this, than just merely being embarrassed. As a matter of fact, what you'll find really interesting is, as I was doing my research this week, um, multiple sources I read attested to the fact that we have evidence that in the first century, people were being successfully sued for running out of materials at a party. It was so important to this culture that you took care of your guests and you provided for your guests that you could be sued in a court of law if you ran out of utensils or wine or something else. So this was, by the way, this was not just small act. This was a major act of compassion, a major act of kindness. Uh, Jesus really did save the day. But what, I, what struck me as interesting, though, is that the text does not emphasize the kindness of Jesus in this text. I'm, I'm sure he was being kind, but it doesn't tell us that compassion is necessarily what moved Jesus to perform this miracle. And so I had to ask the question, why did John feel the need to tell us this story? Because neither Matthew, Mark, or Luke contain it. This is a story, Jesus' first miracle. It's only in John. And so it made me wonder, what, what does John find significant about it? And why did Jesus do it? Why did Jesus feel the need, even after saying, what does this have to do with me, to save the party? And why was it important for John to share this miracle with us? And I think that while, I mean, we could speculate a lot of different things. Jesus is just a nice guy. Maybe Jesus just really liked wine and he didn't want to go without the wine. But thankfully, I think embedded in the text, both explicitly and implicitly, uh, John shares with us the really important things that we are to find here. And he really tells us three reasons why Jesus decided to save the wedding. And so we're going to look at those three together today. The first reason is that Jesus turned water into wine as a reward. Jesus' miracle was a reward. This one is going to take a little bit of explanation, but we will get there. I promise. Look at verses 3 through 5 with me. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. This is the dialogue that John establishes that he gives us to sort of set the miracle up. He could have left this out. He could have left Jesus' response. He could have just had Mary going to Jesus and saying, we're out of wine, and then Jesus performs the miracle. So the fact that he included this means it's really, really important. But the problem is, is we're given so few details, it's very difficult to understand what's actually going on here. I don't know if you caught it, but this, these brief couple verses, this brief little dialogue is rife with difficulties. Like, it's very hard to understand what in the world is going on here. Uh, he just, John just leaves out too much detail that it's almost impossible to understand this without some level of speculation. Um, so let me just give you some of the, the questions that ran through my mind that made this so difficult. First, when the wine one runs out, I, I, why does Mary approach Jesus in the first place? Like, why is she going to Jesus? Is like Mary part of, or Jesus and Mary like part of the people who put the wedding on? Like, how is this any of their business? Um, and why does she go to Jesus? Why specifically? Uh, to me, the, the reason, uh, 
the, the, my first gut reaction was that she knows Jesus is a miracle worker and she just assumes, well, Jesus could miraculously provide wine. Um, but that's actually really unlikely. Uh, up to this point, Jesus has not performed any miracles. Remember, John told us in the text that this was the first of his signs. This is his first miracle in his public ministry. Mary does not know that Jesus is a miracle worker right up to this point. And additionally, you know, this is why I, I always think around Christmas time, the song, Mary, Did You Know, gets such a bad rap. Everyone's always like, yes, she did know. The angel told her. Uh, actually, if you look at Mary in the New Testament, Mary was, had an incredibly ignorant and immature understanding of who Jesus was. And that's not to bash on her. All of his disciples did. Everyone did. No one really fully comprehended all that Jesus came to do and be and say. Jesus took everyone by surprise. But the fact is, is when you read Mary in the other Gospels, she is oftentimes grossly underestimating why Jesus is here, what he's able to do. So when we couple the way Mary is portrayed with the fact that this is Jesus' first miracle, it's really unlikely that she's asking for a miracle here. So I just, I don't know why she went to Jesus. Uh, and, and then to make matters worse, Jesus' response to Mary is equally confusing, if not even more confusing. Because first, he, he really does rebuke her. He's not being disrespectful. He's not being out of line. But, but you, you consult all of the Greek experts. This is a, a mild rebuke. Jesus, it's an idiom that's very hard to translate. Your Bibles might have translated, what does this have to do with me differently? It's a Jewish idiom. It's hard to translate. But everyone will attest that it is some sort of, at minimum, it's a measured rebuke. The only commentators that won't see that in the text are Roman Catholic ones. Because they are presuppositionally come to the text believing Mary never sinned and a, someone who's never sinned can't be rebuked and so they'll try to make it so that this is actually a really good thing that she's done. Um, but those of us who don't sort of have that lens from the outside, it's not hard to see Jesus is a little off put by the question. Um, Mary didn't do what she was supposed to do, in other words. Again, he's not being cruel or disrespectful, but he does essentially tell her that this is none of our business. And he essentially tells her, it's not your job to tell me how to conduct my earthly ministry. Um, so apparently Jesus feels that his mother is imposing herself on him or crossing some kind of line. But then to make matters worse, so, so Jesus is off put by her question. But the reason he's off put is because his hour has not yet come. And this is really confusing. Because this is going to be a phrase repeated throughout the Gospel of John. And every single time Jesus talks about his hour, the, his hour is coming, his hour is at hand, his hour is not yet. It's always a reference to his cross. It's always a reference to his crucifixion. So how does it make sense in this context? Mary says, hey Jesus, we're out of wine, what can you do about it? And Jesus says, woman, it's not time for me to die on a cross yet. And she's like, I didn't ask you to die on a cross, I asked you if you could help us with the wine. So that's why some people have said that, well, this, my hour, it's not actually a reference to the cross here. It's just a reference to manifesting his glory. But that's tricky because now you're taking a phrase that has one meaning in the entire book and saying, well, except for here, it's got a whole different meaning. So it's hard to read that in there, but maybe it's possible. I'm not sure. But then it gets even more confusing because after Jesus rebukes Mary and after he says this has nothing to do with me and after he says my hour has not yet come what does he do? He does it. <laughs> she says can you help us with the wine? And he says woman this has nothing to do with me my hour is not here. But yeah. Sure I'll help you. 
John just has not included enough information for us, I think, if we're being honest, to really understand all the dynamics here. But he's included what he has for a reason, and so I think we can, we can take a general gist of the story and, and learn something really important from it. And so I think here's a general thing we can say with good confidence as to why Mary approaches Jesus. Maybe she was asking for a miracle specifically, maybe not. But what we all know is that Mary has become accustomed to relying on the wisdom and efficiency of her son. Mary has spent enough time with her son to know this guy gets things done. This guy fixes problems. And she knows if there's anyone at this wedding who can help us. I think it's Jesus. As a matter of fact, um, I am actually very convinced that Mary was a widow. I'm very convinced that Jesus lost his father sometime after his 12th birthday. Um, we know there's a, there's a story in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is 12 years old and his dad is still around. But all the evidence after that, Joseph is never mentioned again. Jesus is not just referred to as the carpenter's son, but the carpenter indicating he took over his dad's, his father's business. Anytime the family is mentioned in the gospel, he's never there. And when Jesus is crucified on a cross, he has to make John adopt Mary. And he says, here is your mother. Here. Right? So the, I think the implication is that Joseph probably died. Jesus is someone who lost his dad. And so what that meant for Mary in the first century Jewish world, when her husband died, who became the man of the house? Her firstborn son the oldest son. Mary has been Jesus' caretaker. Jesus has been taking care of Mary for most of her life. And so throughout that time, I think she has come to depend upon Jesus and she knows he gets things done. He always solves the problem. And so I think she just trusts her son and she loves her son. And so she approaches him and sort of imposes upon him, I think you need to do something here. I, I know you can. I think you should do something about this. And obviously Jesus rebukes her. He, he is, as we said, he's a little off-put with her imposition. And, and, and so this is really a turning point. I think what John is trying to show us, this is a huge, very painful, but very important turning point in Mary's relationship with Jesus. I think this is one of the reasons why this story was included. To borrow an expression from our culture, this is officially where Mary has to cut the cord. Jesus is only one week. We're on the seventh day since he began his ministry. He's only one week into his ministry. And his ministry was the big turning point in his life. Up to this point, he was just, from a cultural perspective, a normal Jewish boy. But now is when it's time to begin his ministry and fulfill his father's will. Jesus' ministry is the, the turning point. This is why he was sent to earth. And so it's at this time where Jesus is officially leaving home. And so what that forces Mary to do is she must now change her relationship to her child, or to, as she probably referred to him, her baby boy. Right? Uh, every, other, every mother who gives birth to a son, I'm, I'm sorry to generalize here, but just based off of my wife Layla, I'm going to generalize. I'm going to say every mother who gives birth to a son secretly dreads the day that he grows up and marries another woman. This is difficult for women to give their baby boys off to another woman. Now he has a new woman in his life. A new woman has his ear. A new woman he is now listening to and seeking to honor. And even though Jesus never got married, so you'd think, well, Mary never had to go through that. In a sense, she did. 
Because of Jesus' unique calling in life and his unique mission in life, this is essentially Jesus being married to his mission. Jesus is now dedicating himself to the mission of God, and in the same way, it is changing Mary's relationship to him. And so what Jesus is doing with this rebuke, when he tells her, why are you imposing us upon this is not my hour, he's not telling her, I'm not going to do it. But he is trying to get her to see something. He's trying to get her to essentially see, you're not allowed to treat me like your son anymore. You're supposed to be a disciple now. Mary is learning in this moment that she is no longer to approach Jesus as his mother, but as his follower. Doesn't mean she's not his mom, but just like our earthly relationships change when when we start our own families, something has changed here. Mary is continuing to treat Jesus like his mom. Go and do this, do this, you can fix this, you can do this. And it's at this moment that Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the nations. You don't don't boss me around. I boss you around. Don't tell me how to conduct my earthly ministry. I'm on my mission now. I answer to the Father's will now, not yours. This is not your business. Mary's relationship is changing. She approached Jesus as his mother. And then she left that conversation as a disciple. As someone who has come under the Lordship of Christ. And Mary's response is important, right? What does she do? She tells the servants of the the wedding the greatest advice that you could possibly give to another human being. Listen to whatever Jesus says. You know, the greatest advice you could ever give to someone. Jesus, yeah, do whatever he tells you to do. That's the best advice in the world. But something is being revealed in that. This is really important. Mary's faith is being activated. Her obedience is being activated. Her virtue is being manifested here. Mary understands Jesus and she is now showing her submission. I'm not the boss. That guy is. Listen to that guy. Follow that guy. Obey that guy. Mary accepts the rebuke humbly and she learns and she puts herself in her proper place and her proper relationship to Jesus. And then, it suddenly makes a little bit more sense why Jesus would, at that moment, tell the servants do this and turn the water into wine. So what is Jesus doing then? He's rewarding her faith. He's rewarding his mother's faith. Jesus is essentially saying, I will fix the wedding, but first, I need you to see that this is my choice and not yours. And once she sees that, he rewards her humility, he rewards her faith, and then he does what she asked him to do, which he originally said no. You can almost think of it as a test. It's it's right up to the line of a test. Jesus wanted Mary to understand something before he goes off and does this miracle. And she understood it. Jesus was rewarding her faith. And so herein lies the first lesson of our sermon for all of us. Jesus is the rewarder of faith. Jesus loves to honor and bless your faith. He turned water into wine to honor the faith, not of his mother, but of his disciple. Let this be a reminder to us all. We can all attest, faithfulness is hard. It's hard to trust God. It's hard to obey him. Many of you may be in a season in your life right now where God's law doesn't make sense. 
I don't think I should do it this way. I've got my own ideas of how I should run my life. I have my own ideas of what might fix this situation and they're, they're incompatible with God's law. What God is requiring of me, what God is asking of me, it doesn't make sense. And it takes an incredible amount of faith to humble ourselves and say, I'm going to listen to him and not me. I'm going to trust his plan and not my plan. But when we do that, God is the rewarder of that faith, both in this life and the next. He loves to reward our faith. And this is nothing more than what the book of Hebrews testifies to. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. He is the rewarder of those who have faith, the rewarder of those who seek him and obey him and love him. So that's the first reason Jesus changed water into wine. He was rewarding Mary's faith. But there's another reason for the miracle. This one's a little less subtle and it takes a lot less work to figure out. It's much more explicit in the text. Look at verse 11 with me. After it happens, John adds his commentary saying this, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The other reason why Jesus turned water into wine was to serve as a testimony. It was both a reward, but it was also a testimony. Notice how after his disciples saw the miracle, John very explicitly says they believed in him. Their faith that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, what they were hinting at earlier, we think he's the Messiah, that's been strengthened. They believe in this guy. And therein lies the very purpose of biblical miracles. Miracles serve as testimonies. The purpose of miracles in the Bible is always to to validate the claims of the messenger. In other words, miracles are God's way of saying, listen to this person. Right? This is why God gave Moses so many miracles. Can you imagine the audacity? Some Jewish man flees for years from their their bondage. The guy who grew up in privilege his entire life runs away, scaredy cat, flees, and then comes back years later and says, I'm going to save you all. Just follow me. Follow me into the desert and the most powerful nation on the face of the earth will be conquered by me. Who in their right mind listens to that guy? And, 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 and Yahweh knew, I don't expect them to listen to that guy. And so Yahweh testified. And Moses, God worked miracles through him over and over again so people could see, yeah, this guy, God is with him, not with Pharaoh. That's the purpose of miracles. So as Jesus turns water into wine, as he performs this incredible, miraculous feat before their eyes, now the disciples are saying, yeah, okay, I guess we were right. (laughs) This is no ordinary rabbi we've got on our hands here. I've never seen a rabbi do this before. By the way, notice that's exactly why John refers to them in this verse as signs. He doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. Because again, that is what miracles do. They sign. They point you to something even better. They point you to the reality of what is happening. In other words, think of it this way. John 1 was a... I hope that you agree with me that John 1 was a really fun chapter. There's a lot in John 1. But if you'll notice, John 1 is basically, with a minor exception, it's basically all claims. Jesus is the Word of God, the eternal Word of God. Wow. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. My goodness. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of Man. These are big claims. You got any proof for me? The rest of the book of John is the proof. Jesus said, you've heard who I am. Now I'm going to show it to you. You don't think I'm the Son of God? Watch this. 
That's the purpose of these miracles. And so what this means for us is this is a good reminder for us. The second principle I think you can take home with you today is that our belief in Jesus is not just some blind leap of faith. We're not just believing in some guy just because he said it. Jesus came and proved his claims. His father vindicated him with signs and wonders. And we have this amazing attestation preserved throughout the history. Our, our, our New Testaments are the most reliable, authenticated texts that we have from all of antiquity. Jesus then and continues to demonstrate that we have for good reason put our hope and trust in him. Jesus came to vindicate the faith that we hold in him. That was the purpose of his miracles and they're being written down and passed on through generations so that we could believe we're not dealing with some ordinary guy here. Jesus even tells the Pharisees this, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus is saying, if you don't want to just take my word for it, fine. Let me show you. Believe what I'm doing. Who else could raise from the dead if they didn't have the Father in them? Jesus' miracles are a testimony to cause us to believe in him, just like the disciples. Now, there's a third reason. I would argue this is the most embedded reason in the text. Easiest one to miss, but I would say it's the most important. I think John is a literary genius here. And the third reason that Jesus... So the first reason was that Jesus did the miracle as a reward because he is a rewarder of those who seek him. His second purpose for the miracle was as a testimony to prove or to vindicate his claims or at least begin to vindicate the claims made about him. The third reason is that this actually serves as a form of a prophecy. Jesus is very subtly trying to teach his disciples more specifically about who he is and what he came to do. This, in this miracle... And the way John tells the story is a prophetic vision into a three-year future where we will see the overall purpose of Jesus' mission. Jesus came to turn water into wine as a symbol of the fact that he came to fulfill the old covenant and institute the new covenant. John is trying to teach us that Jesus came to transform something old into something new and better. And if you think that I'm leaping or stretching, let me show you all the details in the text that lead me to this conclusion. The first reason is just the overall context that right now we are in the context of a wedding and the focus is wine. And the reason that's important is all throughout the Old and the New Testament, marriage, weddings, and wine are used as symbols to associate with the, with the kingdom of God in the new covenant. The Bible loves to metaphorically talk about the people of God as being married to Christ. The people of God is as, as having a marriage feast, the marriage supper of the lamb, the bridegroom coming to meet his people. The, the kingdom of heaven is a marriage. And additionally, it's also oftentimes referred to as wine. Wine is a blessing. Wine is a gift. And the kingdom of God is metaphorically described as wine or something flowing with wine. We don't have time to go into every single example. So let me just give you one passage that actually incorporates both of them together. Keep your markers here, but turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. And we're just going to look at verses 14 through 17 together.
Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. Now, we don't have time to, to preach this passage, so I can't tell you exactly what it means in all of its details. But just notice that Jesus begins with this metaphor that I am a bridegroom and my people are who I am marrying and I have come to them and so we're rejoicing, but I'm going to leave and there will be sadness, but then I will come again. The whole coming of Christ is described as a marriage. And then right from there, he goes into a different metaphor. And then the third metaphor of new wine needs to go into something new. We don't put new wine into something old. We put new wine into something new. This is just one example of Jesus metaphorically describing his relationship to his people, to the new covenant, to the kingdom of God in marriage language and in wine language. Right? So let's go back to John and just, you'll have to just do the research on your own. It's, it's everywhere. And so we've already seen, just from the outset, that we're, we're, we're sort of already symbolically supposed to be kind of thinking about the kingdom of God, the new covenant, right? What Jesus came to do. So that's my first reason. But secondly, the, this explains the details surrounding the water jars. We're given um, some interesting specifics about the water that Jesus turned into wine, right? Jesus didn't have to turn that specific water into wine. There was a well they were drawing from. He could have done that. He could have just made wine appear. But Jesus very intentionally turned specific water into wine. And John goes out of his way to tell us that. Read verse 6 with me. Where did the water come from? Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So this wedding already came equipped with an incredible amount of water. These large uh, stone water uh, jars. And John makes sure to tell us that this is not drinking water. This is not drinking water. This water is for the Jewish rites of purification. The Jews had all of these different traditions and laws about how to cleanse yourself, how to wash yourself before you partook of a meal. At one point in time, as a matter of fact, Jesus is rebuked by the Pharisees because his disciples don't follow all of those before they eat, right? So the Jews had all of these traditions and all of these laws about how to wash yourself before you could eat. And so, obviously, a large amount of water has been put out so the Jews could do their ceremonial customs. And that is the water that Jesus transforms into wine. And so the symbolism of this is that the old covenant is gone. The Jewish purification has been transformed by Christ. And what has it been transformed into? Something better. Jesus is transforming their religion into something new, into something better. By the way, this, this explains the detail found in verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. John makes sure to tell us that Jesus, after he said fill them up, that they didn't just fill them up. They filled them up to the very brim. Why did John waste valuable ink 
an expensive paper to tell us that little detail? Wouldn't, have, wouldn't it have been sufficient to say, Jesus told them to fill up the stones, and then he told them, draw some water from it and go present it to the guests. You wouldn't think thought twice if the text read that way. But John goes out of his way to say, by the way, they not only filled them up, they filled them up to the brim. Why does John want us to know that? Because this is fitting with the symbolism. The old covenant is met its end. There's no more room for it. We have fulfilled this covenant. The covenant is filled. There's there's no more room. We need something new now. Jesus filled these things up to the brim. The Jewish rites and ceremonies were filled up to the brim. So we say, it's done. It's over. We've maxed out. Here's something new. Here's something better. By the way, that's what I came to do. Jesus is telling us that the old covenant has come to its completion. And he has come to earth to give them something not just new, but something even better. Because here's the thing about water. I understand that it sounds like a personal preference to say whether water is better than wine. But no, not in this culture. Water is seen as survival. right? You drink water because you have to. You will die if you don't drink water. In the Old Testament, wine is not a need of survival. It's a blessing. It's a gift. To have water is good. To have wine is better. Wine is always presented as a gift. Just one example. Look at Psalm 104 with me. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's hearts. Wine was given as a source of joy, as a blessing. There are also many times in the Old Testament, by the way, where a land that is not flowing with wine is referred to as a sign of God's judgment. Wine was a gift. It was a blessing. And keep in mind that the text doesn't just emphasize that Jesus turned water into wine, which is just, to this people, objectively better. It goes out of his way to say, it's really good wine. To, to, to borrow an expression from, from our culture, this stuff is top shelf. Look at verses 8 through 10 with me. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water and now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus, after he transforms the water into wine to confirm the miracle, he has the servants take uh, the wine to the person who we would think of as like the wedding coordinator. Of a caterer, maybe. And the coordinator tastes this wine and he realizes how amazing this is. And this upsets him. And why does it upset him? Well, because the Jews had a, had a, a custom where when you throw a party, you always serve the really, really good wine first. And then the wine, you, you can't afford that much good wine. So you got to get a bunch of bad wine. And then you fill that afterward. And there's some unfortunate logical sense to this. Because... I'm not condoning this, by the way, but this is the way that it is. That if you drink enough, eventually it doesn't really matter what you're drinking. Right? So that's kind of the logic to it. Once once you've had your fill, then anything will do, right? But when you're completely sober, then you're really paying attention. So there was a logic to give them the good stuff first, and if it's good enough, they're not going to care about what comes after that, right? So that was the custom. You always serve the good stuff first. And so here the wedding coordinator is. They've not only run out of the good stuff, but they've run out of the bad stuff, and so here they come with new, and it's the best wine he's ever had. What were you thinking? This should have been served first. Jesus did not just give them wine. He gave them good wine. 
And this is exactly how we are supposed to think of the covenant. Jesus did not just come to give us a better covenant. He came to give us the best. He did not just come to give us a better kingdom of God. The best. Jesus brings top shelf covenant promises with him. And this, by the way, is all affirmed throughout the New Testament. I'm not saying anything the New Testament doesn't explicitly say. The book of Hebrews in in Hebrews 8.13, in speaking of a new covenant, he, being Jesus, makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. When those water jars of purification were filled to the brim, Jesus was saying they're obsolete. We need something new now. But it's not just new. It's better. Hebrews 7, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. A gracious covenant. The covenant that would save the world. Jesus didn't, in other words, Jesus didn't just give them more of the same wine that they already had. Jesus' new covenant is not just more of the same covenant that we already had. It's a new and better covenant. It is a foretaste of his greater purposes, this miracle, to transform the old covenant into something new, something better. And the reason this matters so much for us is because the covenant that we are in affects the people it's in. The covenant doesn't transform without transforming those who are in the covenant. And so, in many ways, when you see Christ turning water into wine, you don't just want to think broad terms of Him turning an older covenant into a new and better one. You want to think very personally. He has transformed you. He has taken your water and He is making it top shelf wine. With the coming of a transformed covenant comes a coming of the transformed covenant people. Christ came to work a miracle in you, to change you. He's not interested in water. He's not interested in wine. He's interested in you. This is what Paul describes Christ's purpose of doing in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You were once water. You are now wine. Christ came to transform the covenant, which means he came to transform you. So what do we learn from Jesus' miracle? His first ever miracle. What's the significance of the story of Jesus turning water into wine? What does it mean for us? It means that Jesus is the gracious rewarder of faith that he is who he says he is and that he came to make us new. 